there, listener. Fancy meeting you here. Today on the show, we're going to continue our look into the Philadelphia Experiment, which is easily one of the most notorious military conspiracy theories of all time. In part one, we just did kind of a quick overview, but in today's show, we're going to delve deeper into the main players behind the lore concerning this fascinating mystery. I'm going to go into detail on the three big names, the men behind the myth. Dr. Morris K. Jessup, Carlos Alande, and Al Bellic. Two of them are alleged survivors of the experiment and have had a lot of influence on the topic. And at the later half of the show, we're going to go into the alien agenda stuff because apparently they really had a lot of influence on this stuff from the shadows. The first show on this topic heavily revolved around the work of Gray Barker, but we're going to delve deeper into other writers on the topic with all sources linked in the show notes if you'd like to check them out for yourself. Again, I'm not really trying to prove or disprove anything. I don't want you to believe or not believe. Skepticism is just as important as curiosity and imagination, so by all means, come to your own conclusions in all ways. So let's get into it then, shall we? I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. So just who are these people that have brought the Philadelphia experiment into like the mainstream pop culture subconscious and cultivated this indomitable conspiracy theory? And we're going to start with Dr. Morris K. Jessup. This guy was a famous and pretty esteemed astronomer and associate of Gray Barker later in life. Jessup gained attention of ufology researchers because of some interesting articles that he wrote at first for a magazine called The Saucerian Bulletin, but later would become more famous because of his best-selling books on UFOs. But what's most important to remember about Dr. Jessup is that he ruined his career and his personal life because of his work into, into like, you know, researching high strangeness. And people have to really believe in what they're doing to make that kind of sacrifice. I don't really know anyone in my day that would do such a thing or even like has well, not everybody, but most people don't really have the courage to just follow their dreams and do what they're driven to do and like to do, despite like everybody around them trying to hold them back and tell them to quit and stop. And the man was very scientific and logical in his approach to ufology, which kind of went against like the UFO cultists back then. Don't get me wrong, there could be great people, but there's a lot of people back then that were just blind believers. And his more rational approach was Pretty much like a breath of fresh air from the more intellectual side of the people who researched the UFO phenomenon. No one would have ever labeled him a saucer nut, quote unquote, which was a common mainstream insult of the time. 
You see, there's two very distinct and contrasting sides concerning UFO lore. There's the blind believers, which often get delusions of grandeur and are kind of categorized as UFO cultists by some. Which, I mean, isn't the nicest thing to say, but it's still like, that's something that from people from like their own circle of high strangeness would say. You know, like Gray Barker or John Keel. And then there are the more scientific researchers with esteemed backgrounds worthy of respect by basically everybody. These people are much fewer in number, and you know, there's also countless shades of gray in between those two, but I think you get my point. It's these intellectual types that raise eyebrows in the mainstream and often leads towards new people being drawn to the topic of UFOs. Jessup was one of these people that were highly regarded and baffled people outside on the mainstream. In fact, at the time, his books were not popular with the Saucer fans community, specifically because of his critical thought approach to the topic. But he was very popular with the broader audience. In 1954, he even wrote about his frustration with all the nonsense on the topic of UFOs and said a lot of it was put out by silly people and was generally despondent at best and disgusted at worst concerning a lot of UFO researchers' work. Jessup did believe that we were at a pivotal and higher level of human experience, though, and that there was truth hidden between the lines in a general outlook of UFOs and whatnot. And the man's disregard for mainstream demonization proves in a self-evident manner his devotion to understanding the UFO phenomenon. He'd often even investigate things himself and find evidence before beginning to write on a topic. He wouldn't just write whatever popped into his head or whatever other people told him. He needed to like figure stuff out on, on his own and have some basis in reality in order to justify its existence. However, this drive to seek the mysteries is ultimately what led to his death, at least according to many people, and it's a theory I subscribe to as well. Ray Barker believed he was straight up assassinated and there's evidence that his silencing was because he discovered the truth surrounding the Philadelphia experiment. Allegedly. The bizarre annotated version of one of his books, The Case of the UFO, has been linked back to the government, the military in particular, and then republished allegedly by the military in large mimographed form. I don't know what mimographed is but there was a total of 25 copies made of this like revision of his book that supposedly had people in the know behind the scenes in the deep state in the military whatever you want to call them who actually like wrote notes in the book clarifying and adding like um elaboration to things correcting things and it was pretty trippy the republish was spread throughout military circles but a copy ended up in the hands of the ufo community because of course it did. And these, these annotations inside the book were written in three distinctly unique sets of handwriting, and each one was in a different color. All of the notes adding or confirming weird stuff about the UFO phenomenon. The annotations were really convincing. Well, I mean, whoever did the annotations, I mean, did a good job. And they did a good job of convincing people who had in-depth knowledge, not just of UFO tech, but about the entities that were behind them as well. If they were forged, it was some awesome forgery, though the probability of them being authentic also is uh, 
just as probable, I guess. Supposedly, the Navy gave a copy of this annotated book to Jessup, which would allegedly later lead towards his death. And you may be wondering what this has to do with the Philadelphia experiment. And don't worry, it totally does. The main body of lore surrounding this topic originates from this guy and a man named Carlos Alande. After reading a lot of his work, Alande had been sending letters to Jessup about a secret government cover-up called the Philadelphia Experiment and had been sending him letters for some time. These letters would be compiled into one piece of literature called the Alande Notes. Certain naval officers took the Alande Notes very seriously, even more seriously than Jessup himself, at least at first. It's important to note that Jessup thought the annotated form of his book was ridiculous. He couldn't figure out why the Navy would mess with him in such a way and disregarded Alande as a crackpot. But his opinion would completely change. Gray Barker too thought that Alande was a nut and later changed his mind. But we'll get into Carlos Alande in a moment. I want to just really quick cover what was said in the three different colors of side notes in Jessup's book. The annotations refer to two distinct space-bearing species, the stasis neutral and undersea beings, with both able to interchange between habitats without any bad side effects. In the notes, the water beings are said to build underwater cities, and the two races have many different forms of transportations, just like humans have different types of cars and planes and whatnot. The undersea race is basically like the aquatics, the Syrians, to which I've talked about before. But what the hell does stasis neutral entities mean, right? What the hell is it even referring to? It's pretty cryptic, but you can see Jessup thought this stuff was weird real quick and wondered why the hell the Navy would spend money reprinting his book with all these weird side notes of nonsense uh, just to mess with him. But the more he read the annotations, the more it all intrigued him. The two alien species are referred to constantly throughout the book as SMs and LMs. It says that the LMs are peaceful and have good intentions towards humanity, but the SMs are not afraid to get their hands dirty and are more self-interested. The LMs are spoken highly of, whereas the SMs are somewhat reviled when talked about in the annotations. I think the SMs might have been the greys, but I based that off of nothing. And if you remember the shows I made on the Nephilim, you'll remember that entities analogous to the aquatics from UFO lore are found in the mythology of many ancient civilizations, including the famous Dogon tribe who had a vast knowledge of astronomy that was far more advanced than the modern world at the time, and they possessed that knowledge for thousands of years. Anyway, these aquatic humanoids often in mythology teach early humans how to have a civilization. They're usually the first ones who come up and tell the early human civilization how they can have like societies, art, culture, etc. The Seven Sages is another popular one. But there's a whole lot of them. Just a cool similarity that I thought I'd point out. But the annotations go on to explain just what happens to ships and planes that vanish in the vile vortices on the planet. Vile vortices being places like the Bermuda Triangle and other anomalous areas of activity um, that's kind of suppressed, but you can find 
information on it pretty easily. There's vile vortices all across the planet, and they're pretty interesting to research. When something vanishes in a vortex, such as the Bermuda Triangle, it talks about like all the how, what actually happens to these people. Researchers also feel the book is coded, and there's more to it, but superficial examinations always fail to make sense of the code, and it's still not proven. But these aliens mentioned within are first linked to gaining prominence after the Philadelphia experiment and are possibly ET races with an investment in humanity because of the technology discovered during it. The two alien factions seem pretty different, but apparently don't really mess with one another for some reason. So I guess according to this stuff, the aliens did have something to do with the Philadelphia experiment, but it was more pulling the strings from behind the scenes, and not necessarily even in this dimension. Allegedly, Dr. Morris K. Jessup was assassinated because he discovered the truth behind all this stuff. And the bad factions and shadow players discovered this and had to silence him. Covered up as a suicide, of course, as is the deep state calling card. However, nothing about that narrative adds up. The man had everything to live for and no one who knew him would have ever suspected that he was suicidal. There were no signs and no reasons he'd ever off himself. It's very probable he was indeed silenced, and that's what most researchers on the topic believe. Now, why would the Navy allegedly give Jessup this information and then later maybe kill him or somebody in the government kill him? Well, because of the Alande notes, of course. There seem to be different factions of the aristocracy at play here, but at least one faction within it, and specifically the Navy hierarchy, was interested in all this for unknown reasons and was okay with interacting with UFO researchers. See, all the people in the deep state, they aren't all united. Some factions actually seem to be on the side of the people, or I mean on, um, you know, disclosure, truth. And though this eventually led to Jessup's death, it wasn't the intention of this faction, and in fact, had a lot of interest in what Carlos Alande had to say, and even in other stuff that I researched in another book, he was uh, one of the people that could have possibly written in the annotations as one of the colored side notes of the handwriting in, in the book. And from this information side, they even kind of try to make him out as a gypsy, a possible gypsy. But just who is Carlos Alande? Well, that's when things start to get interesting. This guy is one of the most mysterious people concerning this topic. And though he's dropped off the map, he very well may be possibly alive, even though he'd be extremely old. He's probably dead. But there's just no records of him after a certain point, and no one knows what happened to him. He could have even been assassinated like Jessup, for all we know. Only a handful of people even really knew him at all. I mean, if he interacted with anyone... It was on a solely superficial level. Those who knew anything more than that were extremely few, and even they couldn't figure him out or knew too much about him. He was a strong man that obviously survived a lot of trauma, like a soldier who survived a horrific war but was not mentally broken yet. You can still tell that something is off about them. Most researchers who listened to his story of high strangeness thought he was a crazy person at first, 
but then would come around to take what he said more seriously later. And there's a good reason people thought he was nuts because he claimed to be a survivor of the Philadelphia experiment. At this time, the experiment was well known only in military circles and had yet to reach a broader audience in the UFO community. Well, there was those who knew about it, but there were few, because obviously a lot of military personnel would later go on to become UFO researchers. But back then, it was mostly a military conspiracy theory talked about in whispers between service members. But Alande would be the main contributor in bringing this topic to the UFO community. As Alande wrote letters to Jessup, the two would go on to have a steady back and forth for a bit. Carlos Alande was super paranoid and always looking over his shoulder. And you can even tell this paranoia in his writing style, which is the reason why Jessup didn't take him seriously at first, until he began to understand its style and the personality behind it. However, in the letters, Alande signed his name as Carl M. Allen for his own protection. I just thought that that was important as a side note, because he didn't really go by Alande at first, I mean. And once Jessup got used to the unique grammar and style of writing, he noticed a possible similarity to the annotations in his book sent to him by the military. And this is one thing that gave Jessup the idea that Alande may have credibility about him, because why would the Navy care unless it was legitimate? The answer is they wouldn't. Unless it was a psyop, I guess. But I was going to read one of his letters. I did decide against it, though, for expediency. Just to sum it up, his writing is intelligent and everything is spelled right. It's just weird. Alande's style of writing is robotic and overly formal, with words being capitalized oddly, like randomly. Not randomly, but he used a lot of capitals when he didn't need to. Overall, it feels like a, maybe like a Southern gentleman's type of writing from the 1800s with an, like an engineer or a scientist flair to it. In the letters, he explains the symptoms of the experiment, going blank, getting stuck, and the freeze, as I mentioned in the first episode concerning the Philadelphia experiment. But he also goes on to tell a bunch of other secret information about Project Rainbow. In any case, the reason why we're talking about this right now, listener, is because of Carlos Alande. It's just a shame that it led to Dr. Jessup's death. And who knows what happened to Alande. But another one of the leading players concerning this topic is Al Bellic, who is an expert in the field of electronics and was recruited by the Navy for his high-tech expertise in the late 30s. He's no slouch, and another one of these intellectuals to get involved in high strangeness that raises eyebrows of normies. He had a PhD-level education in physics, as well as all kinds of other crazy stuff, so he was very highly educated. And just as a side note, we should also remember that Al Bellick, when originally part of the experiment, was a man named Ed Cameron, to which he'd later... Oh, I'll get into that. Don't worry about it. But if you ever look into this information yourself and you see these names being switched around and what I'm saying doesn't make sense, it's because I'm just kind of like mixing the two together. It's the same guy, Al Bellic. For ease of access and not to be confusing, I'm mostly just going to go with Al. Despite him maybe being Ed Cameron 
at the time I'm talking about him on the timeline or whatever. Anyway, Belloc caused a lot of controversies when he came forward as one of the survivors of the Philadelphia experiment all the way back in the 80s and gathered a lot of attention from those interested in this stuff. The man himself was soft-spoken, polite, and ethical, at least according to those who knew him on a personal basis in his daily life. So a lot of people who knew him were surprised that he'd say such bizarre stuff, uh, like pretty much out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere. He'd just go on about uh, how he was a part of this secret experiment, lost a lot of friends because of it. But as I mentioned in part one, he'd regained lost memories after watching a movie on the topic. So I guess it wasn't out of nowhere, more so allegedly he just started to remember his real past. The man had never talked in public or to groups for that matter. So when he first came forward to make a presentation, he'd arranged like little file cards, flashcards, I guess, to speak. But um, at the last second, he decided to just toss the cards in the trash and talk from his heart, according to witness Tim Beckley. So to me, I mean, if you understand psychology, there's aspects of his story that seem authentic Liars and charlatans all act in specific ways, basically across the board. But looking between the lines concerning Al, I'm pretty convinced that he truly believed what he said. Does that mean I believe everything he said is true? <laughs> well, the mind is a funny thing, but I do believe that he believed in what he said was true as an honest fact. It actually seemed like interest in the Philadelphia experiment was going up because of the movie that just came out. But in 1989, the UFO researcher circles were very open and welcoming to Bellick as he stepped up to the mic to give his presentation at Tim Beckley's annual New Age UFO Fest in Phoenix, Arizona. His story hypnotized everyone there. And while some instantly thought he was a pretender, as people should be skeptical, that's good, most were completely engaged with what he had to say. I mean, this... This is the guy that supposedly time-traveled, but it's even weirder than time-travel. It's very convoluted. And we'll be right back to talk about Al Bellic after a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Do you like food? Do you not like going places? Do you like staying home and having food brought to you? Well, you're in luck, because a thing called Blue Apron exists. With multiple pricing, there's a way to get the gourmet delicious meals under any budget. And it's totally worth it. Cryptic Chronicles would not promote Blue Apron unless it knew how good it is for you. With all the junk and everything these days, the majority of people sustain themselves on poison and don't even know it. A healthy spirit, mind, and body requires a healthy lifestyle, and the ability to take care of yourself, and feed your body all the nutrients it needs to function at its best in our highly demanding lives. You get to choose your own meals. The chef-designed recipes include balanced Mediterranean delicacies, quick one-pan dinners, and top-rated customer favorites. Unpack your home-delivered box with enthusiasm because there's a guarantee on freshness and the highest quality of all Blue Apron products and ingredients. Create magic following our step-by-step -step instructions, you'll experience the magic of cooking recipes that the master Blue Apron chefs created with your family's tastes in mind. With step-by-step -step instructions, so you never miss a beat and have to get frustrated about making the meal. I know I do that. At least, when I'm not eating a delicious Blue Apron meal that is responsibly sourced, quality ingredients like fresh produce, sustainable seafood and exclusive spice blends means you're going to have a meal that's top tier over the common fast food garbage most people eat. 
and Blue Apron cares about the environment, which is another reason I love them so much. With recyclable ice packs and packaging to ensure your ingredients stay fresh until you're home and ready and easily disposable for the health of Mother Earth. Do yourself a favor, and take care of your body and mind the way nature intended it, with a healthy meal that's also gloriously delicious. With Blue Apron, the yummy goodness is dropped off right to your very doorstep. So if you like food, and you like not going places, then why not try Blue Apron, and give your mind a rest from going to crowded grocery stores, and writing a list of stuff to get, only to forget half. $30 off weed with code podcast? Did someone say $30 off weed with code podcast? Amuse delivers over 500 high-quality cannabis products from the Bay Area brands you love at everyday low prices. You can also rest assured that everything will be up to your high standards. So what are you waiting for? Start shopping now at amuse.com. Use promo code podcast to save 30 bucks off your next order. That's amuse.com. Okay, so I sat through like four hours of listening to Alan Felix, uh, his lectures at MUFON, to which I got to say those things got to be edited to be chopped up. You could chop all of that up, what I listened to, into like maybe an hour if you just get rid of all the excess stuff and there's other people who talk in it too. And he's a guy who definitely sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Felix says that the military discovered space-time compression technology during the Philadelphia experiment. This technology not only provides the means for teleportation, but also interplanetary and interstellar travel by generating wormholes in space-time. And he knows all this because he was there. To which I will go deeper into specifically. His association with the Montauk Project is also fascinating, to which I will definitely cover soon enough on a future episode. But as I said, Al is highly educated in various vocations in the field of electronics, and he contracted for various military contractors. During these clandestine operations, the people who worked with him began to reveal the truth about our involvement with extraterrestrials and PSI ops, psychic operations. With these experiments, these programs completely all about figuring out some pretty weird stuff and how to manipulate the human mind. And strange stuff started happening to Al shortly afterward. In 1956, he was recruited into the Montauk Project. And I know you astute listeners can see how the timeline isn't really entirely syncing up. Now is it? Well, that's because Al essentially isn't quite the person we know yet and is existing in the future at the point of Project Montauk. If that confuses you, then good. But don't worry, because it gets much, 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 much more confusing. Al would work his typical job in California for cover, and when done with his shift, take the underground subway to Montauk, Long Island to carry out his duties there. Apparently, the Montauk Project was working on time travel, specifically a device called the Time Tunnel. When the Time Tunnel was completed, he'd literally just teleport home to his apartment instead of taking the underground subway tunnels. He says he went on like this for some time, until the 1970s, when he was put in charge of weird psychic testing as the program director for physics 
who manned the notorious Montauk Chair, which altered reality through psychic powers. If you haven't heard of it before, it basically is said to have, you know, allegedly, it's said to have turned thought into reality without glitches. So once again, think about Stranger Things and that show how they experimented on psychic kids. Well, this is based on an alleged real-life thing called the Montauk Boys, which was supposedly a key program at Montauk. Al had some influence with the Montauk Boys program, and what he did basically revolved around duties concerning the operations of the mind control program. Pretty out there, right? In the 1980s, the Montauk experiments completed time control programs, and Al was part of these so-called time travel experiments. Al even claims to have traveled to Mars a bunch of times, as well as time traveling to a research station back in 100,000 BC, as well as straight up other planets to get canisters filled with light and dark energy, and even to the year 6037 in the future. And all this before even starting to get into anything concerning his influence or what happened to him during the Philadelphia experiment. After all, allegedly all of this was wiped from Al's mind anyway. As I already said, he didn't get his memories back until he saw the movie The Philadelphia Experiment, all the way in 1988, saying that like it somehow triggered the block to disperse that had been brainwashed into him. In his words, it was a, a rip in space-time that allowed him to begin to, or his subconscious, I guess he said, to begin to like bring back memories that he was forced to forget. Al believes that his involvement with Montauk ended because he wasn't supposed to remember these memories, and thus his use for the secret government project ceased. As more and more of his memories came back, a man named Dr. John von Neumann contacted him, because apparently Al promised someone that if he ever did get his memories back, he'd contact the doctor. And this is the famous Dr. John von Neumann too, the one associated with like electronics. What's interesting is why didn't they just kill him? Why did they go through all this trouble of brainwashing him and all this other stupid stuff when they could have just killed him and got it over with and not wasted any resources? It doesn't make sense, right? Well, according to Al, it's because his time traveling and interdimensional travel locked him into the timeline in anomalous ways. And they just straight up couldn't kill him and that's why he believed he was not silenced, stopped, or harmed when he came out with all this information, because they already knew the timeline outcomes anyway, and already saw that he wouldn't really make a big difference or impair them. And also, if they did kill him, it may disrupt space-time itself. Though, just what that means, I don't really know. The only choices for the clandestine forces behind the Montauk project was to let him die a natural death. And they already regressed him from Ed Cameron into being Al Bellic anyway. And uh, Al even worked with himself, I guess. His other self, it's very confusing. But they're actually one and the same person, like I already said. His consciousness isn't a normal human anymore. Or wasn't a normal human anymore, I mean, because he's dead. But the first legitimate memory that Al has, and at least his final version of himself in this timeline is him actually being a baby of nine months old and understanding the conversation of the adults around him. Which is bizarre. 
He was originally Ed Cameron and then sent back with other memories and he became Alfred Bielek. Mindfuck. <laughs> I mean, if we got merging timelines, other universes, and just a whole bunch of super weird stuff. Apparently, Ed knew too much and it irritated his superiors and was pretty much voted to be disposed of through space-time to be regressed into the identity of Al Bielek. In his MUFON lectures, Al says that he was also involved in Project Phoenix, which is kind of an umbrella, an umbrella project that had a bunch of stuff under it, including mind control experiments. And it could very well be his involvement in Project Phoenix that he was essentially disposed of by those powers that he worked for. But of course, there is more to all this stuff. If you're more interested in it, I definitely want to get more in into detail on Project Phoenix down the line. Not in this episode too much, just maybe a quick overview. Anyway, Al grew up in his fake identity in an alternate timeline, but there's still so much to cover concerning this guy. It could take up many episodes dedicated to him. I don't wanna do that. But essentially later, one of the architects of all this, Dr. Von Neumann, started to find clues that something was wrong concerning the Philadelphia experiment. I know this might be confusing, just go with it. The timeline's a mess trying to tell this information. But I was going to have to go back in time to the Philadelphia experiment. In the book Philadelphia Experiment Revelations, the author talks about things called time locks that have to do with Al and his journey through time. So earlier when I was talking about how they couldn't kill Al because he was like uh, attached to the timeline in, in anomalous ways and it could lead to bad stuff or whatever. This is also a part of that whole issue, the time locks. It's pretty metaphysical, but I think it's not too hard to summarize. Essentially, people have certain locks that are only escapable in death. And when you die, you can travel through time and even reincarnate at different points in time. In quantum mechanics, similar trains of thought exist, and from that perspective, the present moment we live in is actually an illusion, because our consciousness has to latch onto something in order for our infantile minds to understand existence. Our consciousness has to just like zero in, otherwise it can't understand itself. But in truth, our true nature is a being that exists past, present, and future all at once. And if you throw the many worlds theory on top of that, then it gets even messier. So I'll spare you all that hot mess. But time locks essentially make our reality stable on a quantum level so that our consciousness can experience it in the way that we live our lives. According to Al, his associate, Dr. Newman, disrupted these time locks during the experiment. And this is why some survivors are said to have faded in and out of reality. Their locks were damaged in space-time. During the interdimensional travel of the ship, the time locks were temporarily paused. And when the ship materialized, if the crew were somewhere outside their time lock, they'd appear where they were anyway. And that's why the victims were discovered like half-materialized in the hole in deck. You know, people's arms and legs popping out, people's bodies halfway protruding, pretty much dead at the moment that they came back which was at least a short but excruciating way to die. In 1953, Dr. Von Neumann conducted the same experiment, 
which was the Philadelphia experiment all over again, but this time they supposedly knew what they were doing. In any case, the experiment was a complete success and no crew of the ship were killed this time. This success led to the creation of the stealth bomber and other still secret technologies kept under wraps by the deep state. However, these projects were one of many programs, with the main and original being the mind control research. That is until 1958, when Congress got, uh, finally decided to read some of the stuff that they fund and decided to cancel the project after they learned that uh, it was about mind control experiments and stuff. Great job. But the brainwash research continued anyway in other forms, you know, like from 1967 to 1968, and then, you know, the MK Ultra stuff. The point is that the Phoenix Project is one of the contributors to all of that stuff. And in 1983, the Phoenix Project set their sights on research from the Philadelphia experiment. A lot of this information seems to contradict itself, like depending on the source, <laughs> more than a couple times. But from what I see at this point, the experiment has been conducted successfully at least three times over the decades. This time, though, things were a bit different. And a prediction by Einstein came true concerning their tech. Quote, If you create a machine with sufficient complexity and give it enough power, it will become intelligent itself. Keep in mind, too, that this is, was, was before the term AI was a thing. The Phoenix Project was not conducting the experiment at sea. Only the original one did that. But a controlled facility with computers. And you gotta remember that computers back then were like the size of a house. <laughs> it was a massive complex, and the computer was everywhere with its cords everywhere. And it took on a life of its own, according to the story. And in this experiment, they did their whole interdimensional opening travel portal thingy. And guess who came out? A Bigfoot type entity. Or more accurately described as a Yeti. And it was, uh, I guess it went crazy. And it just destroyed everything that it came in contact with. It was m massive, superhumanly strong, and could just shrug off bullets. To stop this interdimensional entity or whatever it was that looked like Bigfoot, they had to destroy the power source. But they couldn't do this because the computer found its own power source from the Direct Sea. This AI had found a way to go around people trying to shut it off. And who knows if this AI was the thing that brought the Bigfoot entity over in the first place or called it or something. Like it's so vague. The information does not elaborate on any of the details which is kind of frustrating because it's like dude you summoned bigfoot like an ai computer from the past summoned bigfoot to mess with the people doing the project phoenix testing there's got to be more to this but the only way that they could stop this entity and the computer from killing everyone was to destroy the computer connections themselves to which the scientists succeeded the Bigfoot entity disappeared, and oddly, no one used the term AI once during the entire description of the event that I read this in in the books. They just used terms like intelligent computer. And uh, this little incident would lead Project Phoenix to kind of shifting gears, if not outright be shut down, but would definitely lead to or influence the Montauk program, 
which is even more morally bankrupt than any secret government program we've covered so far. And that's saying something. But I'm getting off topic a little bit. Let's go back to Al Bielik. He worked for the Montauk program and had been brainwashed to forget everything he did there, like I already said. But during the time working for these crazy people, Al had time traveled back and forth, with him and his brother being the ones to jump off the ship during the first Philadelphia experiment and then going to the future to later be sent back to smash the equipment to free the crew and the ship and rematerialize normally with his brother and him being split up in time unnaturally. Al Bielik says that the movie The Philadelphia Experiment is actually pretty accurate to what actually happened, including the two men jumping off the ship mid-dimensional teleportation. Though later his accounts would change to an extent to which who knows. It could be merging timelines or something, or new memories coming up, but the account definitely was not fully formed when he first began getting his memories back, which normally would be a, a kind of a red flag for a charlatan with the story changing over time. That is, other than the fact that we're dealing with multiple timelines and stuff like that. I mean, if you're even entertaining this idea at all, that can conveniently make up for the changing narrative that he gave. It never changed too drastically, keep in mind. But at first, when he would tell his story, it would be that he, the movie, The Philadelphia Experiment, the beginning of it, like the first half, was actually very accurate. And then later, it kind of altered a little bit. Never dramatically, though. And he did keep on having more and more memories resurface over time. It wasn't like this happened all at once. And funny enough, the U.S. military was actually pissed about the movie and tried to ban its release, which is hilarious. And were actually even successful in banning it in, uh, in the U.S. for two years after the initial release. But after a counter-injunction, you know, taking him to court, it was eventually released fully to the public and is still available to this day. So if you haven't seen it, I suggest going and checking out that movie, The Philadelphia Experiment. It's definitely worth a watch. But why would the military even care, though? The powers that be only censor things that are a threat to them in some way, and there are way more damning conspiracy theories of that time than the Philadelphia Experiment. JFK stuff is way more damning. It's odd behavior because if they had just ignored it, they would have looked a million times less suspicious. I mean, when the elite try to censor something, that means it's probably worth someone's attention. It gives a sort of validation. And by human nature and psychology, the more something is suppressed or they try to hide it, the more people want it. I mean, just look through the Middle Ages. It's pretty self-evident. So by the military doing that, they most likely created a whole horde of researchers that wouldn't have ever cared if they didn't try to censor it, like if they just did nothing, it would have been better for them. I'm overthinking it though, probably. And I don't want to digress anymore. But, um, so Al's brother too, you know, after Al came forward with his memories resurfacing, Al's brother had strange memories returning about the Philadelphia experiment as well. And by all accounts, he knew far too much than he should have known because he never saw the movie, The Philadelphia Experiment. It was only Al talking about it, like without any elaboration really that he could understand. He didn't have context. 
It was him talking about it that brought these memories back in his brother's subconscious as well. And then they go into past life regression stuff, but <laughs> I mean, I've researched far too much on hypnotic regression, past life regression to not be pretty skeptical about it. I mean, I do believe it can work, but it depends on the person. A lot of times it's just the subconscious pooping stuff out, you know? But anyway, his brother did get the past life regression therapy and he spoke of his whole journey, basically, that mirrored Al's perfectly. You know, all the stuff that went down and all the crazy stuff that they did. Billick says that his brother time traveled to 1983, lost his time lock, and aged about one year per hour. Then died. Obviously dying from old age and like, like not that long, which is pretty crazy. It's very sci-fi. Sure, that reminds you of a couple movies you've seen, like super fast, mega aging. But he then said that his brother was later reborn. See, there's like uh, weird reincarnation stuff going on with a lot of these people too, who covered the Philadelphia experiment stuff, who were involved in it. But it also could just be seen as his brother switching consciousnesses. You know, you go into the quantum immortality stuff again. But honestly, <laughs> I read the chapter three times and I still I still don't really get it, to be honest. I mean, I just. I could if I wanted to, but I don't want to give it that kind of a time sink because I could, in order for me to really get it, I'd have to make notes and then outlines, compare notes and whatnot from all these different sources. And I'm sure that it does make sense if broken down correctly. And it would be a lot, make a lot more sense than how I'm telling it to you, listener. But I'm sure you get the gist. Time travel and consciousness shifting, reincarnation, etc. Just go with it. We're talking about Al Billick, the Philadelphia Experiment, and soon to be getting into the alien agenda. We'll be right back after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Hi there. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. We'll even give your podcast a shout out. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party site. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course, Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show, but most of all, thanks for listening. back. Another interesting thing concerning von Neumann, Al's associate, is that officially he died in either 1953 or 1957, depending on the source. But Al says he was working at Montauk well into the 1980s, which is pretty weird. 
Von Neumann is famous for his real-world computer fame, but according to Al, he didn't really die when the mainstream said he did. He actually states pretty clearly and confidently that Newman survived somehow through a time lock, like a time lock shenanigans. So who knows? He could still be around doing his mad scientist thing till this day, according to Al. Though Al Belek may seem inconsistent at times, I can't really bring myself to judge him or get too overly analytical about his work. Kind of ruins the fun. He did allegedly go through multiple timelines and consciousnesses after all, and it's uh, some fascinating fringe lore, no matter which way you look at it. My imagination loves to swim in it without accepting it or denying any of it. I just wish the information was easier to comprehend without me trying to overanalyze it, I guess. I don't know. It's good stuff, though. It doesn't get much weirder than this. So at least I hope I'm relaying this very confusing material to you in at least somewhat of an entertaining way, listener, because holy crap, I'm confused too. I just pretty much stopped trying to understand the timeline, but we're going to go into Al's trip into the future now. When he was traveling through what he called hyperspace, he called the other dimension hyperspace, the dimension between the dimensions. Some people call it the fourth dimension. Some people tried to link this stuff to the astral plane, too. Anyway, when he went through hyperspace in his original trip through space-time, Al materialized in the year 2137. He and his brother arrived needing medical assistance and spent their first month in the future hospital there. They were burned in the... You know how I said in the first episode that people would catch on fire when doing the laid-on hands, and then, like, during the Philadelphia experiment, a lot of the people who survived, they had, like, anomalous burns on them. This is that. They went through the other side and they got burned up and had to be hospitalized. So they spent their first month there and the future humans revealed a lot of grim stuff about what was going on in the world. They showed the two a map of a very different United States. The future people said that between the years 2000 and 2016, a catastrophic event would occur that would cause the Events that would lead up to the map looking the way it did, with the U.S. all weird. However, considering our modern time and what year it is right now when you're listening to this, these apocalyptic events that Al predicted that he said the future people told him never happened. They never took place. Well, at least in our current timeline. In our version. Again, it could just be summed up that that was a possible future and that's a different timeline. I don't want to be arbitrary. It seems that Al and his brother were sent to a possible future, in my point of view at least. Not a concrete one in linear time from where they came from, because we have definitely avoided this apocalyptic event in our timeline. This wasn't the end of his trips to the future though, because Al would later travel to the future again, but this time, there is no explanation for it. He just was sucked into hyperspace and sent there seemingly for no reason. Uh... Some people tried to, well, I think in two of the books, people tried to like link it to being similar to the freeze. You know how people got sucked into the alternate dimension and just like vanished from reality. But this version of the freeze made him time travel and it wasn't like deadly or make, make people go insane. He survived the trip to the future through it. Other than that, there's not really an explanation. Still... Yet again, he did have burns on him and was hospitalized when he went there. And this time, he went even further ahead, to the year 2749. 
And this time when he woke up in the hospital, he said that he was given some pretty bizarre treatment from a vibrational, I think he said crystals, but he called it vibrational and light treatment, which healed his wounds. And he'd actually spend two years in the future, in the 28th century, claiming to get a job as a tour guide in order to support himself in his new surroundings, despite being a fish out of water and somewhat of a sideshow for people who lived there at the time. Many of the ways we look at the world in our times are, according to Bielik, are outright ridiculous to them. Some of the claims he would make at MUFON lectures and interviews he gave, while bizarre to say the least, are most certainly fascinating. And at first, this future seems pretty cool and uh, not, not a bad future, almost even a utopia in a way. But then it gets pretty dystopian. Not necessarily dystopian, actually, because it's all pretty neat and nice and everything, but it's still disturbing nonetheless. At least to me it is, and I'm pretty sure it probably is to you, too, after I explain it. The tech of this future Earth that was closely linked with the culture had a synthetic computer system. Describing it as like a huge crystal, it's pretty much just AI, but they don't use the term AI. When was that term invented? Did they even like have that meme back then? <sighs> Moreover, this computer communicated with the population telepathically. It was sentient and it could literally micromanage like everything. If people needed information, the computer would talk directly into the heads of the citizens. And if you use your imagination a little bit, I guess even they could have been, it could have even been commanding them. Who knows? Think about uh, authoritarian stuff. It could easily just do that and gaslight people too. But no one was free of this thing. There was no physical money, which baffled him. And instead, everybody had digital credits used as money analogous to how we use money today, but more so as a formality than a form of wealth or whoever has more gets more type of thing. It was more so just like a, a social contract, just a system of doing things which is the first sign that something's kind of creeping off. So you can see how this is like kind of a dystopia, but like a very pretty dystopia. However, the most interesting thing he discovered was the lack of governments. There wasn't any. There was no threat of any war between any nations in this future. It's not all sunshine though, because he said that the future people told him that there was a global war between Russia, China, the US and Europe that led to the death of billions. And it was after this like horrific event that things started to kind of more resemble the direction that the current civilization was at. The earth maps were also quite wrong to him because a lot of the continents as we know them today were underwater. Like Florida, a lot of coastal stuff was just gone. A lot of continents as, as we know them were unrecognizable. And that's because a pole shift had happened the Earth looked completely different. But scientists had also created an artificial pole that reasserted planetary stability so life could function once more. In fact, life was awesome. The planet was extremely healthy and green as it could possibly be. They, the Earth was much more revered than how we treat the Earth. And nature was left to its own accord for the most part. The nations as we know them were mostly dead though culturally relevant and prominent in art, architecture, and entertainment. They very much remembered the past. They, they, they didn't lose any information. 
So despite the horrific, crazy world war that happened between all the global powers, the, we didn't go backwards. And the earth was like pristine. There was no pollution. Everything was green growing. Animals were everywhere. You know, everything was awesome. In fact, the majority of the human race didn't even actually live down on the planet, but lived in floating cities that roamed around Earth, depending on specific circumstances. Kind of like a tide, I guess. And this is just kind of an awesome visual. Floating cities and the Earth being all perfect and beautiful. I like that image a lot. If it wasn't for the crazy mind control type stuff going on in the background. I mean, who doesn't want to live in a floating city? We could call it Dalaran. And these cities were, like, the human population wasn't low. It was still, like, going strong. But this was basically how people lived now, in these floating cities that floated around the Earth. The AI controlled all the day-to-day -day type stuff. And though this AI was universal, basically, not all humans utilized that particular AI. And there were humans in other floating cities that did not use this AI. But these people were like uh, barbarians, I guess. He doesn't say that. He says that they did have their own version of such programs that pretty much did the same thing. But these people were considered exiles from the main society and kicked out by their own actions. The scariest part of this future, though, or possible future, is the lack of privacy concerning this AI. He asked the future people on several occasions how the synthetic computer that ran everything came into existence and like uh, took over running things like he would ask how the story behind the history behind how it became so prominent and everywhere and having so much power and control he also asked who invented it and you know all that kind of stuff but the way that these people reacted to these questions was pretty creepy because to Al it seemed like they had never even thought of that question before Nobody, not a single time, had ever asked that many questions about the AI. They'd never even analyzed it or thought about it, where it might have come from, how it gained control. No matter how many times he asked, nobody could give him a solid answer. And the only information he ever got was that the AI was built in the 26th century, and that's it. Everybody just, that was the way the world was, and they didn't question it. So to be honest, despite how kind of cool that future is, dude, screw that future. That future sucks. So, listener, it looks kind of like this might be getting, being a long episode because I promised that I'd get into the alien stuff last episode and I'm going to get into the alien stuff. But since I kind of blabbed so much, looks like this might be a long episode. There's a lot more information regarding Albelic, but it drifts off into Montauk Project Phoenix Project and CIA MK Ultra stuff, and we'll get into all that stuff soon. I think I want to cover maybe like all of these <laughs> top secret quote unquote experiments, programs, and everything. We'll get them all under our belt. And if it's relevant, I could always add more to the story of Al Bellic, but for now, let's put a lid on it. He's definitely one of the most well known survivors or people in general concerning the Philadelphia experiment, which is why I spent so much time on him. He also talked to Art Bell many times. Like, this guy's pretty famous if you go check him out. Just don't expect to understand what the hell's going on. This is all really just scratching the surface. But what about the so-called alien agenda? I've been referencing this stuff and ETs many times over concerning the Philadelphia experiment, and we got some juicy UFO phenomenon lore here. 
I kind of like the overall view of ETs concerning the Philadelphia experiment stuff because it's not too woo-woo, love and light, or overly grimdark and depressing. It's got a nice little balance in the middle, depending on how you see things, of course. But luckily, according to Al, the aliens don't want us dead and may even, in fact, protect us if our existence was threatened by extinction. Though not necessarily from benevolence, but personal gain. It's in their self-interest to have us around. He says aliens want us alive and intact for making them stuff, and also specifically in the Gray's case for genetic experimentation. There's like an underlying theme of a secret government hovering over all the information that comes from the Philadelphia experiment. The experiment itself is not described as an alien project, though sources say it was influenced by ETs from afar. According to this narrative, it's because they wanted humans to open up a 40-year gateway in space-time for them to travel back and forth between the dimensions, between our worlds, and had basically been pulling strings from the shadows to get this all rolling. The ET influence wanted the portal time-locked to the later Phoenix project so the two space-time currents could link up, but the 40-year opening through hyperspace was disappointing to them. Though the reason for this is pretty vague because it just basically says that they couldn't use it to the full extent. Most sources do confirm that Project Rainbow did open the door and that after it was open, after the experiment, many alien crafts came through and back and forth for many years, for decades. And there was even a planned full-on invasion from another universe that fell through. Though this is just from one distinct faction of ETs that is oddly left out from being elaborated upon. I assume it's the Greys. But then again, six feet tall aliens are mentioned as the invader people, but not really given any more descriptions or anything. And Greys aren't really known for being six feet, but I'm still going to say it's Greys. And if you're unfamiliar with information and, you know, it's people talking about greys, there's actually a lot of different ways to look at these guys. Some people think, or actually a lot of people think that they're just slaves or robots that serve other aliens, specifically the reptilians or mantis races. But despite not wanting us destroyed, these things don't have our best interest at heart. In one of Robert Lazar's books um, concerning the history of Earth, he says that these aliens referred to humans as containers for souls, and that souls could be traded in something like a barter system. The aliens are doing it all the time, allegedly, and this kind of leans into the starseed lore stuff, though there's not a direct connection, but it is basically starseed lore stuff. And I've talked about it before on the show, I don't really think I gotta go into it, but just go listen to past episodes, I don't remember which ones are... You'll find it if you don't know what I'm talking about. Or just look it up. It's not hard information to find. It's just basically that alien souls come and take on human bodies. Boom. And there's many aliens in the cosmos that got their hands in the cookie jar concerning the souls and incarnations on Earth. However, though many aliens surrounded the project, most were just observers of what was going down such as like the Cthulhu mythos type eldritch abominations that live in the world between worlds, the hyperspace Al called it. These aliens are apparently far more interested in the mental plane, like dreams, archetypes, ideas, 
the fourth dimension, stuff like that. They don't really have a lot of investment in physical 3D reality and would be far more interested in just exploring our consciousness than anything else. With these aliens in particular being more fascinated with humans than uh, seeing them as a resource or anything like that. But then again, these alien, most of these aliens are actually interested in humans because of their human mind. Um, our minds are unique or something. And also genetics, which I'm sure is a dead horse that you've heard a million times before. And though the Montauk project is not directly the same as the Philadelphia experiment, they are linked to one another. And there is a group of aliens directly linked to Montauk. It's a group who called themselves the Leverons. There were those there from the Antares that were only observers. They looked like humans. They were members of the Orion group there occasionally. The Orions are the reptilians. And these Orions are at war with a group of celestial aliens called the, get this, Elohim. But honestly, this kind of stuff, it just seems too influenced by real world lore to be credible, especially concerning my vast knowledge on Sumeria, Canaan, and Abrahamic religions, both esoteric and exoteric. But luckily, there's a lot of resources to pull this information from. So, I mean, I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And this Orion group is basically universal across like everybody's UFO lore. And it's a bunch of different alien factions that are part of the Orion group, the Draconis. It's not just the reptilians. And they're said to be the heaviest influencers behind the scenes concerning Montauk, the Phoenix Project, and the Philadelphia Experiment, which makes sense concerning all the evil stuff that happened at Montauk. They manipulate the Greys, and I guess all the players really? But despite all this, overall, it's really only the Greys and a handful of other ET civilizations that required the door to be opened in order for them to come in and out, thanks to the Philadelphia experiment, at least to some sources. However, a few paranormal entities that formerly could only interact with us in the fourth dimension and dreams and the like were actually let into our reality from this experiment. They use a bunch of mumbo jumbo to try and describe these entities, but in truth, they don't say anything at all. There is no real description of them other than fancy prose, and as far as I can tell, they aren't physical. And if you're thinking what I was thinking at first, no, they are not shadow people either because those accounts go back all throughout human history. But then again, they can time travel. No, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. Unless it's like uh, an invasion through our subconscious or something in the past, and only now they are quote-unquote really here. But what I find the most interesting about these entities is that supposedly they only really entered our reality during the Philadelphia experiment. There's extremely little other elaboration on them. It's super vague, and normally when people are making shit up, they throw in a bunch of fluff. But in reality, ambiguity is the way of the world concerning a lot, and humans just have an obsession with labeling things. I guess if you're a Christian, they could be demons from that point of view, possibly. But I mean, they could be anything, really. They're not physical. But even though they're not physical, they are still technically aliens. And their agenda is unknown. And transdimensional entities are still aliens if they're not human. 
Uh, Bielik talked about aliens that kind of work similarly in his lectures at MUFON, in which there are many alternate realities our government has access to, and these alternate realities overlap. An alien could be present and be visible, or like a ghost or something. In fact, we seem like ghosts to beings on the other side of an alternate reality. Some aliens, but not all, can freely pass between these alternate realities, meaning they could basically be a ghost one moment and then materialize into a full-blown alien standing right in front of you the next. Obviously, concerning the Greys, it's pretty much agreed upon that they were interested in genetic experimentation on humans, but even that can't be taken 100%. There are not nearly as many documented accounts of Grey abductions in modern times as there were in the past. But there is an uptick of reptilian abductions and mantis abductions. But then again, most modern abductions talk about like humanoid aliens. Or at least enough of a hybrid not to totally freak people out. Depending on circumstance, of course. Don't get me wrong though, there are still alien abduction accounts going on around the world. Just not in the high numbers over any other type of alien like it used to be. And also, too... <laughs> In UFO phenomenon lore, there are many groups of greys on top of that. So this all can get very slippery very fast. However, one of the factions of greys definitely would love to take over Earth if they could. Allegedly not only for our rich genetic resources, but also as a staging ground for this area of the multiverse. A base of operations, if you will. But with the way that things have gone, this seems highly unlikely with all the other alien factions having an interest in our planet. And these main groups are allegedly Pleiadians, Orions, Zetas, Antares, and Syrians, both humanoids and aquatics. And only the reptilians of the Orions would benefit from the destruction of our way of life, cultures, and autonomy. So we're saved by space politics, I guess. But hey, at least that's uh, that's kind of good news if there's any truth to any of this. It's more profitable for um, aliens, for us to be alive and mostly self-governing, than to be dead or enslaved, so that's always good. A lot of these aliens reviled humans and only worked with them on these projects because they were ordered to. I think that the only ones who are actually described as being friendly to humans are the aquatic Syrians. And in Al Belek's MUFON lectures, there's, there's actually a lot of aliens that he says live on Earth. They're in the millions, just underground or under the ocean. I think Al said like around 3 million currently live here, but I can't remember. In order to explore some of the deeper aspects of this, I would, uh, you'd have to know about the Montauk chair, to which I will cover when I make shows on the Montauk project in the future. But the, the Montauk project received help from a handful of these alien factions, most pronounced being the Greys and Orions. But it's because of the Montauk project that the Philadelphia experiment came about the way that it did according to our timeline, and thus the alien influence. According to this narrative, if it wasn't for Montauk sending back Al Bellic, then it's likely there'd be a very different outcome than the one we're talking about in these episodes. However, despite his intentions being good, the time lock link from 1943 to 1983 
really helped out the alien agenda. But it's believed that the first parts or the beginnings of this agenda go back much farther. The first investigating commission into activities of extraterrestrial aliens was in 1887 under President Grover Cleveland, and the foundation of the future projects could have been laid out, but, uh, I mean, some kind of agreement could have been made all the way back then, but to think that we were investigating this kind of stuff all the way back in 1887 is kind of telling. And out of all people, Aleister Crowley pops up, more so in the the Montauk Project and the Philadelphia Experiment, but it's interesting to find him here nonetheless. He did supposedly contact a great alien doing occult rituals. Lamb, I think his name was. And how did I not expect him to pop up concerning all this? It's too ridiculous not to be true. But this episode does have to end at some point. I don't want to go on too long. Let's just say that Billick says that the Draconians, the Reptilians are behind a lot of the evil stuff concerning the Philadelphia experiment and the secret government programs that spawned from it. That's all for today's episode. Sorry if a lot of this stuff is confusing because it's really, really confusing. And the information regarding the Philadelphia experiment evolved over time, so it's kind of impossible to try and present it in like a clear, linear narrative. But this stuff is all highly fascinating, and I can't wait to go down the rabbit hole in the future about uh like the Montauk project and all that good stuff, because that's coming. Anyway, Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and basically all podcast hubs. You look for us, and guess what? We're there. If you can, make sure to like and comment or review wherever you hear this content. If you enjoyed this episode of Cryptic Chronicles, even in the slightest, you can help us out by just interaction. It makes the algorithms like the episode, and so it'll help spread and grow the show and by doing so, you are doing more than your part in support. And if you really, really like Cryptic Chronicles and you happen to be awesome, then support the show on Patreon. For just a dollar, you can unlock full uncensored shows with no ads or anything like that. You'll get access to exclusive podcast episodes and depending on the pledge, a bunch of other stuff, as well as the Discord channel. You get the episodes, I mean, I'm usually like four or five episodes ahead. So that means that you can be like up to couple months ahead in episodes if you want just by helping out for a dollar just go to crypticchronicles.com at the top click on the chronicler's vault it's a link to patreon so you'll be good to go it's also just cryptic chronicles slash patreon blah 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 <clears throat> it really means a lot to me and speaking of awesome i'd like to thank my current patrons mj calvo adrian john celestial weavers alien x lorna grubb paul Linda Gonzalez, Angela Dillaire, Ashley, Brad Herbert, Lawrence Lee, Patricia Coles, Kayla, Max, Michael Worrell, and Jimmy Woods. Thanks for supporting Cryptic Chronicles, but most of all, thanks for listening. And as one of the greatest physicists who ever lived once said,
cut through the ridicule and search for factual information in most of the skeptical commentary, and one is usually left with nothing. This is not surprising. After all, how can one rationally object to a call for scientific examination of evidence? Be skeptical of the skeptics. Thank you.